0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. <laughs> David Crosby's work paved the way for the folk rock movement. He was a founding member of the Birds. He performed at Woodstock as a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. That was also right around the time he started using drugs. He eventually got sober, but only after an extended stay in a Texas state prison. Crosby's been a musician for over 50 years. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. You might expect a musician to start slowing down in his late 70s, but Crosby's writing more than ever and working nearly every minute he can. He's the subject of a new documentary, too. Remember My Name is its title. It's directed by Cameron Crowe, and it's playing at festivals right now all over the country. When we talked in 2016, he just recorded his solo album, Lighthouse. Here's the opening track, Things We Do for Love.
1: Was it something she said About a dream she had One of those ones that faded so fast you knew it was bad she that she's losing you.
0: David Crosby welcome to bullseye it's great to have you on the show
1: thank you man so where did you learn to sing uh, <laughs> I didn't I uh, I never learned a darn thing. Um, I started singing, you know, my family sang folk songs and stuff, and so we we all sang together. I started singing harmony when I was about, mm, they tell me, around six years old, and I started singing in clubs as a folk singer when I was about uh, maybe I don't know, 14, 15, something like that, and then. Uh, I started earning my living that way when I was probably about 17, 18. Did you love folk music? Very much, yeah. Why? Uh, When when my family, uh, when we got our first uh, record player, we got, uh, we had a 78 player. We used to play classical music in in the big albums, you know, where you stack up 78. When we got uh, one of the first LP players, 33 RPM players, and... uh, We bought some of the the very first uh, LPs were 10-inch, they weren't uh, 12-inch, and and we got Weavers, big deal, Weavers, Pete Seeger, great example. Uh, Josh White, uh, Odetta, I learned a lot from Odetta, and a bunch of classical music, and and more uh, folk music after that. Were you
0: on board with rock and roll music at the time?
1: no. No, uh, Elvis didn't cut it for me. I just wasn't, that wasn't my thing. I mean, I knew about it, you know, and uh, I knew about Bill Haley and the Comets. I knew about a bunch of that stuff. It didn't trigger me until I heard the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers just mowed me right down. I loved them. What was it about them? They sing harmony really fantastically well. They wrote the book on singing harmony.
0: You were in a group, and I'm not trying to out you here because you've been you know you were also in uh, the Birds and Crosby Stills and Nash two uh, groups that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Uh, but before that you were in a group called Les Baxter's Balladeers uh huh yeah
1: had to bring that up didn't you
0: (laughs) can you tell me about Les Baxter's Balladeers
1: yeah we needed dinner (laughs) uh I had been at that point singing uh, some with my brother, who uh, was also a musician, and uh, he would play bass, I would play guitar, we would sing, and um, we needed to actually earn a paycheck. And at that time, folk music had devolved into the Christie Minstrels and uh, you know pop group fo- folk music, and so um, Les Baxter, a composer and recording guy. He wanted to have one of those. He said he, he figured he could make money with that. and uh, So he hired me and my brother and my really wonderful longtime friend, Bob Ingram, and another friend of mine, Mike Clow. and uh, the four of us. Uh, we actually sang pretty good, but we looked sillier than <laughs> I mean silly. <laughs> we were wearing red, ba- red bellboy jackets and black pegged pants, and it was embarrassing.
0: Now, Les Baxter was like he was like the king. For people who don't remember, he was like a king. of, I mean, he sold twenty trillion records. If you go to any thrift store in America, you'll find a six-foot-high pile of his records. Um, but he was making like dinner music, right? Yeah,
1: like, yeah. Nothing, nothing. No significant contributions there.
0: So, how did you? How did you feel? Were you embarrassed about it at the time, or were you excited to I be getting paid to sing?
1: Okay, go put on a short-cut, short-waisted red bellboy jacket and black pegged pants. Look at yourself in the mirror and if you're not embarrassed, you've got a problem. <laughs> I guess it depends on whether you're a bullfighter or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like that. Only all four of us dressed the same, which is just hideous.
0: You know, I I talk to a lot of people about where their creative careers come from. And for a lot of people, there's this big turning point that basically is them realizing that it was possible to make a living being an artist of some kind. Um, And not just like that it's possible in the abstract sense, but that they can actually see a, a path in that. But I imagine that that was sort of in the cards for you because you're your dad was in show business. Your dad was a uh, cinematographer, and in fact, an Oscar-winning cinematographer. Mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe there's a difference between being in Les Baxter's balladeers and the kind of show business that you ended up being in. In that one, feels like classic showbiz. You put on an outfit, and you have a job.
1: Yeah. And the other is something completely different. It's a, a much more evolved state. It's not that the people who are doing it, you know, in the holiday inn bar, are, are bad musicians necessarily, or that they're less than because they do it that way. They're just trying to earn a living. Uh, I got lucky, you know. Uh, I was singing by myself and really enjoying it and, and gaining skill, you know, uh, as I went along. And then I walked into the Troubadour where I'd been many times and where I was very familiar. And uh, there was – there were these two guys, Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark, and they were sitting there singing these songs that that Gene had written after listening to the Beatles. And I started singing harmony to them because they were good. And so – that was how we started the birds and then after that i was i figured out that i I was just a tremendously lucky guy tremendously lucky
0: how did you feel at the time
1: uh excited young happy horny
0: (laughs) 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 i mean yeah you were you were in a band i mean that's pretty much right (laughs) it's all pretty much normal yeah (laughs) um when you started singing Harmony with the other guys who became the Birds, did it immediately make sense to you that this was the direction that you should go?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, there wasn't any question about that. Uh, as soon as I realized that we, we had these songs and they sounded good, Gene was a good writer. And we had a guy who knew how to translate that into a record. Uh, Roger was the only one of us who really knew how to play, really knew what you know was involved in making a record, and um we were excited as hell. It was the big time for us. Why did you leave the birds? I didn't leave the birds; they threw me out. Why did the birds throw you out because I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, we were young guys who had a whole lot of success really fast very before we were even could even spell mature. And we had big egos and I wanted a bigger piece of the pie. I wanted to be noticed more. I didn't want to just be the harmony singer. I wanted to write songs and record them and I you know, but I think there was a lot of egos and a lot of silliness, you know. Normal things for a band.
0: When you started with uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, was it that same thing that drew you in, just that feeling of
1: singing harmony with people and feeling like these pieces fit together? Kind of, but by that time I knew a whole lot more. I knew that Stephen Stills was writing great songs. I knew that he was a major talent, and I knew that he was already writing songs that I wanted to sing. They were terrific. I'd been tossed out of the birds, I was hanging around L.A., I was, you know, doing whatever. And uh, I knew Stephen, and we liked each other. And so uh, I realized that early on that the song is the key to the entire thing. If you have a good song that you can sit down and sing to somebody with a guitar or a piano and make them feel something, then you're in business, then you are on the map, you are on course. Uh, if you're trying to do it without having a real song, with just having June Moon Spoon or Ooh Baby, well, then you're, you know, polishing a piece of stuff. You're, the central issue isn't there. So, I realized that pretty early on. And it, it happened, you know, because I was listening to great writers. By that time, James Taylor was happening and was a very significant influence on me. Uh, and frankly, right after I... Got tossed out of the birds. I went to Florida and walked into a coffee house, and there was Joni Mitchell. And Joni, when she started out, was uh, an experience that you really—it ha- would be hard to describe to you. I walked into the door, I stood there. She was singing one of those songs that she wrote early on, and I was just gobsmacked. I didn't—I didn't know anybody could be that
0: good. You fell for Joni Mitchell. Romantically as well, right?
1: Yeah. It was kind of like falling into a cement mixer. (laughs) Uh, A very turbulent girl. uh, And I love her still. But uh, thank God I'm not with her.
0: Was it scary to be in a relationship with somebody, a romantic relationship with somebody, who you felt like was definitely better at the thing that you had dedicated your life to being?
1: Of course. Of course, and I was producing her record, her first record, at the same time. And I would write something, you know, like Guinevere, and I was pretty proud of it, and she would come home and sing me three songs that were better, and I would shrivel up a little bit. (laughs) It was, truthfully, it was a massive learning experience. Uh, I think in 100 years, they'll look back and they'll say, okay, who was the best singer-songwriter? And it's either her or Bob. And she sings rings around Bob, rings. She's a much better musician than Bob is. And I love Bob and he's my friend and I'm not trying to slag him, but it's Joni all the way. She's the best singer songwriter we've had yet. I'll finish my conversation
0: with David Crosby after a break. Still to come, David Crosby has some hip hop hot takes. Wanna hear who his favorite rapper is? It's different from my favorite rapper. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is made possible by Airbnb Experiences, who wants you to rethink your bucket list. Whether you're home for a long weekend or traveling to a place you've never been, the same question always seems to come up. What should we do? It doesn't have to be that hard. Airbnb Experiences are one-of-a-kind activities hosted by passionate locals in more than 1,000 cities around the world all curated for quality and created for the curious. Check out airbnb.com experiences to learn more. What would you do if you found out a story that had shaped your identity was a lie? NPR's new podcast, White Lies, investigates a murder in Selma, Alabama from 1965 and exposes the conspiracy that kept it unsolved until now. White Lies... Start listening Tuesday. Unless you're able to discuss the semiotics of direwolves and Game of Thrones, Inside Pop is definitely not for you. Sean, that's a little extreme and also not quite true. Okay, Amita, how about Inside Pop is the podcast for people who love and appreciate the best pop culture has to offer much better. In every episode, we interview the people who create the culture you crave.
1: Past interviews include Luke Cage showrunner Cheo Hadari Coker, the music supervisor of The Florida Project, and Mudbound director Dee Rees.
0: You'll also get the very best pop culture recommendations in our Big Cell segment.
1: Plus, the opinions of two TV producers who are pop culture
0: obsessives and actually do care a lot about direwolves. Which, of course, symbolize our inability to truly connect with the natural world without ultimately destroying it and in the process destroying ourselves. (laughs)
1: Listen to Inside Pop every other Wednesday on the Maximum Fun Podcast Network.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to my conversation with the legendary rock star David Crosby. He's the subject of a new documentary called David Crosby, Remember My Name. He and I talked in 2016. I'm sure that you were smoking pot and doing psychedelics from the, you know, from the moment they were broadly available. But when did you start using other you know, whatever, harder drugs, cocaine and, and more?
1: Uh, early times of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, we started fooling around with cocaine. And that was a deadly mistake. It didn't all get really, uh, really terrible until uh, Christine, who's one of the girls that the song was written about, Christine Hinton, uh, got killed and uh, in a car wreck. And I had n- no equipment to deal with that. Nobody had ever died on me before that I loved, and uh, so um, that's when he started um, going off the deep end with the cocaine and, and heroin, also.
0: Were you scared
1: to do it? Scared to do what?
0: Were you scared to do the cocaine, or scared to do to use oh, the hell heroin?
1: No. no, no, no. They told us it wasn't even addictive. <laughs> Funny. Most addictive substance on the planet.
0: Did you see other people around you hurting because of it?
1: Not not then. Not at the beginning. No. No. We didn't know. We had no idea. Uh, what it turned into was a plague. It killed a whole lot of us. I once started writing down the names of people who had died because of hard drugs. And uh, I think it was close to the end of the second page of long form yellow legal pad, you know, that kind. Single space, second page. I was getting close to the end and I said, I can't do this, it's too depressing, and I stopped.
0: How did it change your life? I mean, like, not in the grand scheme of
1: things, but in the day-to-day of things. It destroyed me, completely. I became obsessed with it. Uh, My higher consciousness was pretty much canceled out. And, you know, I just made mistake after mistake after mistake until I went to prison. And in prison, they don't have that stuff. And so I kicked both drugs in prison, in a cell, with nothing—not even an aspirin. When did you go to prison? Mm, Eighty-five
0: for a year, Texas. I mean that's that's a long time. A year? Uh, Yeah. That's a no. I mean, mean, it's a long time to be using. I mean, that ten or fifteen years—that's a that's a big chunk. Long time, but we
1: had a lot of money, so it was easy to uh, get. in a mess. the The point is, though, that when I went to prison, I did beat it, and, and it's a terrible way to beat it. But I went to prison, I came out, and then I did about fourteen years in those twelve-step uh, rooms, and uh, I beat it. I beat it. I've never done it since.
0: What was it like for your relationships when you came back from prison, clean, and you know you had this? 15 years of your life to deal with
1: well you take things one at a time the main thing was that I had by that time fallen in love with Jan Dance and uh, Jandy went into treatment when I went in the joint and uh, waited for me now no one I mean no one waits for their guy their boyfriend who went to prison they immediately go start another life Jandy didn't she loved me and our her, and we waited and she waited for me to get out and then we got back together and got married. We're now together for 40 years.
0: What about the rest of it? I mean, you not only I mean the thing that the thing that I think of must have been the rest of what? The rest of your life. I mean, the rest of the consequences of this, you know, this chunk of 10 or well, 15 years. Well, you know,
1: what you do is you throw away the old phone book. First thing. Uh, you notice who sticks around and who talks to you. Uh, you treasure the few friends you have left that you didn't blow it with, uh, and you start over, and that's what he did. And the uh, 12-step meetings helped a lot, Can I say? They helped everybody.
0: How did you feel different in your relationship with music um, after you got clean?
1: Uh, well, I felt great because I could do it better. I mean, you, you know that, right? You you don't. The people who think you have to be in turmoil or disturbed, and high as a kite in order to make music are just wrong. They're totally wrong. You make much better music if you're straight, and you make um, even better music if you're happy and straight.
0: Is it is it easier or harder for you to write, and to some extent to play, now that you're a, what seventy five? Is that right?
1: Well, you know. Um, Yes, and it's kind of almost inexplicable. Uh, Most people uh, kind of fade out on writing, uh, which is the key thing, writing, as they get older. Either they feel that they have said what they've got to say, or they keep trying to have another hit, or they just get lazy.
0: I want to play uh, another beautiful song from your new album, Lighthouse. My guest is David Crosby, and this song's called By the Light of Common Day.
1: By the light of common day Things look different Than they did in the star-lit dark Warm and cloudy. it was easy to deceive
0: yourself so David I, I want to ask you about um, you're on you are on Twitter and you're uh, you're really fun on Twitter <laughs> you really you really like actually talk to people and engage with people's questions and stuff mm-hmm you know, I do too. It's a huge part of, a huge part of my career, but I have never, I've never gotten to the point. <laughs> I'm better than I used to be, but I've never got to the point where, where the lousy part of it, where just somebody just casually uh, insults you in a really specific way while walking past your Twitter, doesn't bother me. Is that is that gone for you at this point of your career? Like, if if somebody. If somebody has some weirdly specific and maybe even semi-accurate insult to you personally on Twitter, does that, does that roll off your back? Pretty
1: much. They're trolls. They're trolling. Uh, they're trying to get a reaction out of you. It's like TMZ guy. Was, you know, they're trying to get you mad. They're trying to get a reaction. So what do you do? You don't do anything. You just ignore them. Uh, I never answer those people. I don't go, oh, yeah? Well, I'll tell you. Your mama's so ugly. You know, um, I don't do that. I don't. And, you know, there are people who ask me every single day about uh, CSN. Don't you think you could just one more time sing the hits for us, Dave? I don't answer. I don't bother. But the trolls, No, you got to ignore the trolls, man. That's part of the thing. You have to get comfortable with that and somebody says, yeah, you couldn't write your way out of a paper bag. You just go, okay, fine, click and go to the next one. I usually, if they're abusive, I usually just drop them. I block them right away. I don't engage, I just block them. What I like are intelligent questions. I like people who ask me something smart and people do. People ask me sometimes brilliant things. A lot of times they'll ask me, you know, which comes first, the word or the music. And sometimes it's dumb, you know, it's, what was it really like at Woodstock, Dave? No, really, tell us. Uh, uh, well, it was muddy, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Actually, here's the real truth, man. This is a, a, a breaking news, and you're the one who gets this breaking news. Nobody else knows this. Woodstock didn't happen. They faked it. (laughs) No, I'm telling you the truth. They faked it in the same stage that they faked the moon landing. It didn't happen.
0: Uh, I want to read one of these tweets that you tweeted. Uh... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let me guess, it's about Kanye West?
0: Yeah, well, here's the (laughs) thing, David.
1: (laughs) I really love Kanye West. (laughs) Well, you know, everybody has, makes mistakes. I mean, I don't blame you for that.
0: <laughs> so this is this is your word straight from your mouth. I'll let you explain to what extent you were trolling or not. Uh, somebody asked you, how do you feel about Kanye at, at the Glastonbury Festival? This is about a year ago, saying he's the greatest rock star of all time. Now, to be clear, I don't think Kanye West was speaking literally at the
1: time. I think he was. Okay. I well, think he thinks that. Well... M- We'll agree to so, disagree on explain. that point as well. He he did say that, and well, okay. If he thinks he's the best living rock star, somebody needs to drive him over to Stevie Wonder's house because Stevie Wonder cuts him all to ribbons. Somebody also needs to send him an entire collection of Ray Charles so that he can learn how to sing because the guy can't sing for beans. Yeah, well, you if can't listen to this if. I don't try. I think rap's junk, except when somebody elevates it, the way Macklemore does, or the way uh, the guy who wrote uh, Hamilton did. We gotta but get you some rap when, records. When Kanye uh, does, does it, no, I'm sorry. When Kanye does it, it's bad percussive poetry over somebody else's music. Kanye West cannot sing, write, or play. Name me an instrument he plays. Oh, he doesn't. Can he sing? No, absolutely not. He's publicly demonstrated the fact that he can't sing for beans. So where's the big talent? It isn't. The talent isn't being famous for being famous. How smart can the guy be? He married a Kardashian. I just don't like his pose of being the best because he isn't the best at anything. How'd you get on board with Macklemore? My son. I was, I was downing all rap, saying it's just junk because I like melody and harmony and stuff like that and sophisticated music and he said, oh yeah, all junk, huh okay, listen to this and he played me Same Love and I, I started catching glimpses of the lyrics in there and I went, wait a minute, wait a, wait a minute and I googled them and I printed them and I looked at them and they're good the guy can write, he's saying something they're good lyrics I had to s- turn myself around and say, okay, I was wrong this guy's really good Same for uh, Miranda. He's brilliant. Did you hear the the, the rap that he did about Puerto Rico on, on Colbert? Yeah, he's a friend of mine. You know how strongly he
0: disagrees with you on this whole thing, right?
1: That's okay. I'm totally good with that. But he, that rap that he did about Puerto Rico was stellar. It was excellent. The music was excellent. His piano player was excellent. He was excellent. That's elevating it to high, high, good ground. But you have to be able to write, and Kanye West can't write for beans. Could it
0: just be a different thing?
1: Could it be that he's not really good?
0: No, I mean, like, could it be the could the aesthetic values of it just be different than the ones that you're judging it on?
1: Yeah, it, mine are good and his are bad.
0: I mean, like, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that. <laughs>
1: You're not gonna win this one, man. Trust me. <laughs> I got I got truckloads. <laughs> not, not on public radio, anyway. Yeah, yeah, not gonna happen.
0: <laughs> well, listen, if you're on board for Macklemore, I think there's hope, because well, with no shade intended towards Macklemore, who I I don't dislike Macklemore, but um, uh, there's a lot there's a lot better out there. I think Macklemore well, might be. McLemore would tell you that. In fact, Macklemore, yeah, I think would. did say that when he won the Grammy. <laughs>
1: You know, and he's probably right, and there probably are more. I don't like that format in the first place, so it has to be pretty stellar words to impress me, and I haven't heard that. What I've heard is bad poetry sung percussively over other people's music, and I don't approve. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled, and this
0: sounds insincere because everything that comes out of my mouth sounds insincere, but uh, it's really sincere. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that you have this much verve <laughs> thank you man um, and it's, it's really nice to get to talk to you I really appreciate you taking the time
1: um, my pleasure man totally
0: David Crosby friends from 2016 as I said before he is working harder than ever in his 70s kicking off a giant tour with dozens of dates all over this great nation we'll have more info about that on the bullseye page at MaximumFun.org David Crosby Remember My Name the documentary about him directed by Cameron Crowe is set to hit theaters later this summer Let's go out on a David Crosby classic, 1970s, Almost Cut My Hair. A little bit of trivia for you about that. This song is the source of the common phrase, let your freak flag fly.
1: Almost cut my hair. It happened just the other day. getting kind of long I could have said it wasn't my way
0: We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where there was caution tape up around the ramp that goes into the lake. And caution tape has been there for basically a week now. And uh, the question remains, who's trying to keep people off that boat ramp? I mean, I've basically never seen a boat in there. <laughs> The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien here at the office. Our production fellow at Max Fun is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. He has a Pay What You Want album of some of his favorite beats that he's made for our show on Bandcamp. You can search for DJW or Dan Wally there. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before I go, we have been making this show for a very long time and there were a lot of great interviews. I was just thinking of how much I enjoyed talking to the late Harvey Peacock, creator of American Splendor and comics legend. He was basically the grumpy uncle that I never knew I needed. Uh, Sort of like David Crosby in that sense. You can search for Harvey Picar on Bullseye by going to our website at MaximumFun.org. You will also find many of our shows on our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And you can find them on Facebook where you should like Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and join our Maximum Fun Facebook group for a lot of fun talk and dank memes. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.